Happy Father's Day. Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, probably shouldn't have done what I did, but I did what I did, and don't mind it a bit. So. <laughs> See how it comes out. I'll keep you posted on that. Oh, you are in church? Yeah. Well, yeah. my son is listening to Chicago. He said he'd be listening to Chicago. And I said my Father's Day gift has obviously got lost in the mail, but I know he loves me anyway. <laughs> so we'll see how that comes out. Uh, I want to thank Joe Gibbs for, for taking these classes. And he will, he'll end up uh, with his class today. Uh, next, for the next couple of Sundays, I'll be doing the class. For those of you who can make it, next Sunday I'll be doing the uh, Anglican liturgy. It's much to the uh, regret of a lot of folks. Gradually, it seems that the Episcopal Church is gradually... Uh, incrementally, step by step, departing from its rich liturgical heritage, and I want to talk about that a little bit and talk about our heritage, and we'll sit, see where that goes for the next uh, two Sundays. So uh, I know a lot of you will be traveling. Uh, let's say one of those Sundays is July 1st, but anyway, that's just a little heads up. So I'll turn it over to Joe and uh, see what we have here from First John. All right. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, on this Father's Day that you are our Father. We ask, God, that you would uh, be with us now, that you would speak to us as your children. Uh, we thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. We thank you for this letter uh, to the churches by the Apostle John uh, that we can read from and and be enriched from and learn from and transformed by. And we just ask, God, that you would now uh, speak to us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so part four of four, uh, John's concluding remarks, only appropriate given the theme of the titles that we've had. Uh, Don't Stop Believing uh, is the title of this this class, another uh, great song from the 80s. But um, as we said before, the... The Apostle John is, is writing to a group of churches uh, that have uh, been through a split over theological issues. Uh, primarily, uh, the split was over the divinity of Christ. Uh, the fund- and what, what happens is the fundamental assumptions of the two groups could not reach the same conclusion. Uh, you, you start from two dif- disparate points of, of view theologically, you're not going to get to the same place. And the, what the Gnostics believe that early, early on in the Gnostic uh, movement, uh, Gnostic uh, being from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, um, special knowledge, sort of elite, spiritual elite knowledge. Um, and the Gnostics had left the church, and they, what they did is they started with the assumption that good, uh, uh, that the spiritual world is good and the material world is evil, and that there can be no intersection uh, between the two. And... Uh, this had implications in the way that they lived their lives uh, morally, either uh, through asceticism or through sort of gross uh, immorality. Uh, but it also had, as you can imagine, a very, very important, severe implication uh, about the incarnation, the incarnation of God in Christ. And, and so if, if the spirit world and the material world cannot intersect, then there cannot be an incarnation. And so they, what they, all that they could say about Jesus was that he was a, a good man, he was a, a wonderful teacher, uh, that his example should be followed. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
Now, on the other hand, the, uh, the Christians, and what they all called themselves Christians, uh, surely, but uh, the ones who are the followers of the apostles' teaching, uh, they believed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob was the one true God, and therefore he could reveal himself however he wanted. Uh, and however he did it uh, was going to be true by virtue, of the, his, um, by virtue of it being his own revelation about himself. And so the way that he chose to do it uh, was through Jesus Christ, and that, that God became a man in order to die as a man to reconcile us uh, to God. Now, we, uh, we looked last week at chapters uh, 3 and 4, and where God, John makes the uh, uncompromising, uh, challenging statement uh, that you can tell true Christians uh, from false Christians by the fruit that is born in their lives, uh, particularly in the way that they treat others, especially uh, other Christians. Now, John never, ever implies that salvation comes by any means other uh, than by the blood of Christ. However, John does teach that the way to tell that those who actually trust Christ or actively trusting Christ uh, from the ones who merely profess to believe in Christ is to look at whether or not uh, they treat others with love, especially uh, other Christians. Uh, those who understand, uh, and I, I mean uh, understand mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, those who have understanding of what it means that God's grace has been extended as acceptance of sinners by means of the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, uh, will find that statement staggering and humbling. Because what it means is, if we understand it, then we understand that we, have, we are sinners who have been forgiven by God Almighty. Because God Almighty took upon uh, himself, his own wrath that we deserved. And because that is so humbling, uh, we, will, we who have received grace uh, will be givers of grace. Now those who profess to know Christ but show no evidence of knowing Christ in their life probably don't know Christ, whether they think they do or not. And that should give us pause uh, it does not mean that we are. Uh, that this is in no way uh, a, a gospel of works righteousness. The answer is not. Therefore, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. The answer is repent, 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 and turn up, fall on Christ, return to Christ. John says that one's earthly relationships evidence the status of one's relationship with God, and yet he also says that that. You cannot, uh, without a relationship with God, you can't have true relationships uh, in, our, in, our earthly, in our earthly relationships. We can't be um, really united to people without a relationship with God. And so it works uh, together. They work both ways. Our relationship with God and our relationship, uh, relationships on earth. And so now we, atter- we turn uh, to chapter 5, uh, the Apostles' uh, concluding remarks to these churches. And he is... Um, you think about, and this, John is writing, as, as we said, as an old man, but it struck me as I was reading this week, particularly uh, in his, reading again his concluding remarks, that, I mean, there's a desperation in John's tone. He's writing as if, I mean, this, these could be the last words that they ever hear from him. So he really wants uh, to make some particular points uh, to them. Now, again, this is, this is John. It's not Paul. 
John has his own personality, which in no way takes away from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, in, in the writing of Scripture. But in the, in, as the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture, the personality of the author was, was left. And, and John doesn't, uh, doesn't take on uh, particular problems and argue them out like Paul does. Um, and in fact, a lot of, that, a lot of, sort of misunderstandings um, of Scripture come right out of John. And, so, and we will we'll, um, see a couple of those uh, today. But, um, but that's why it's so important not to take a verse or two of John out of context, but to take John uh, as a whole. So John writes, and we're going to look at uh, the first five verses first. Uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So it is pertinent to ask exactly what does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it's pertinent because it has major implications. It determines who is born of God. Uh, It determines who loves the Father and who loves those in the fellowship of believers. And one thing to think about is what is meant by the word to believe. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? And we tend to think of that in terms of uh, cognitive acceptance. Uh, we, we cognitively accept that something uh, is true. If you tell me a story and I believe your story, I have accepted that is true. Or uh, if I've seen it, I, I believe that people have walked on the moon. I didn't see it for myself, but I've seen evidence of it. I've seen uh, videos of it. Uh, I believe it. Uh, even when we, uh, someone says, I believe in God, that typically implies the cognitive acceptance of the truth of God's, God's existence. I believe in God means I believe that God exists in the way that we typically talk. But in Greek, the, the, the idea, the implication uh, for belief was much stronger it was, it was more like what we say when we believe in something. The thought of, of belief, uh, as they intended it, was, was like we might say it, that a rock climber believes in the rope from which he hangs. I believe in this rope because I, it's all I got. <laughs> so when we, um, when we say the creeds, for example, we say the 19 of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Uh, we are saying, or it was intended that we were saying when it was when they were written uh, centuries ago, that we believe in them. We uh, place our whole self in the care of that belief. We are uh, hanging not just our hat, uh, we're hanging our whole self on that belief. We're hanging our whole self on God the Father Almighty and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord. We're believing in the Holy Spirit, the way a rock climber uh, believes in the rope from which 
a hang. And so to believe in the it, it, to believe that Jesus is the Christ then is, is to go uh, all in, as it were, to give one's whole self to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know that. It's His office. Christ is His office. He is the one who was sent by the one true God, and He is God Himself. He was sent to rescue and to redeem uh, His chosen people. He is the dread warrior of Jeremiah, and He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the Christ. And He came to earth to defeat the spiritual powers of darkness uh, through bloody death and glorious resurrection. And it's not a battle that is uh, sort of far off and like you read about it in the news, but it never touches you. It is a battle for your heart. And it is a battle on your heart and in your heart. That's where the battle is is waged. And so you can be sure that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you hang from that fact, then you can be sure that you are born of God. And that is is a very important... It sounds elementary, but it it is very important. And in fact... There's so many things in Christianity that are, where the economy of God is, is upside down. But, but one of them is the deeper and deeper you go with Christianity, the simpler and simpler it gets. It's not complicated. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you can be sure that you have been born of God. But if you don't, if I don't, then when push comes to shove, and the choice of obedience to God is difficult, then we won't do it. Because if we don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we believe, then ultimately our obedience is really looking out for number one. And if we don't, if we, we're loving ourselves in that, not, not loving God. And so if we, we obey out of love for ourselves, then when it gets tough and it actually doesn't look like a good deal for us to obey, then we won't do it. You can think of uh, you know, a, great, a great marriage, and we, I feel like I continually use marriage in this to talk about the relationship, which is why uh, God uh, gave us marriage as a picture of, uh, of our relationship with Him. But if you think of a great marriage uh, where there is mutual submission, to one another, you don't. You do things. You, in a sense, you obey your spouse, right, honey? I obey. I obey, I obey my spouse. Um, but you don't do it because you're afraid of them in the best in the best situation. You do it because you love them. You want to live within those parameters. There's great freedom in it, and it's not about parameters. It, there's joy, and it's because you you love them. Now, if the baptismal questions in our liturgy ask, have you put your whole trust in His grace and love? That is, and if you have, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you will love the Father, John says. You will love the Father. And if you love the Father, then you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a family aspect to that. John doesn't shy away from that. There is a blood relationship. It's the blood of Jesus. Between brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister in Christ. There's no... Uh, we, 
very, there's no uh, like grandchildren. There's no cousins. You know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't mean they don't get on your nerves sometimes. God bless them. Bless their hearts. You know, it just means to love your, your, your the Father, to love uh, your brothers and sisters, is to, know, to love like Jesus loves, to pour out yourself for them. You will not do it if you do not belong to Christ. If you have not received that grace, if you are obedient to save your own skin, you will not do it. But if you love Christ because He first loved you, as John said last week, then you will love the Father. And there's holy ground between you and your brother and sister in Christ. But interestingly, what John says, verse 2, the way that we know that we love the children of God, the way that we uh, know that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, is seen in whether we love God and obey His commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. So John is saying that the love of the Father and the love of Christians go together for Christians. We, we love other believers by obeying the commandments of God. So there is a community aspect to personal obedience. How you respond to the love of God affects your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that shouldn't be a, that shouldn't be a surprise because from the very beginning, uh, we have been commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor has always been uh, a, obedience to the law of God. And yet, John is suggesting that now if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, then, we, then love of our neighbor is, simply, is not simply out of mechanical obedience or even out of religious obedience, but it is out of love for the Father. I will will love my brother or sister in Christ because I love the Father. I will, unto, unto God, unto Jesus Christ, I will love this person. It's my spouse, and they're getting on my nerves. It's my uh, co-worker, uh, and they are not doing how, uh, how, what they're supposed to do. I will love them because I love the Father. Now, we're going to see this again as we go forward. Verse 3 says, uh, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. There's a, um, there's a period uh, there. I don't really think that period should be there. Uh, uh, grammar is all uh, sort of subjective. I'm, I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, but I think that those two must come together. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And that, that's, that is all the difference for the Christian. It's all the difference for the Christian. Uh, Luther, in his preface to his commentary on, on the book of Romans, he said this, he said, When we understand grace, When we understand what we have been given in Christ, grace makes the law lovable to us. And so there is then what what he says, uh, grace makes the law lovable to us. So there is then no sin anymore. And the law is no longer against us, but one with us. This is true freedom from sin and from the law. Not that we don't do the law, but we do it because we love the Father. 
grace makes the law lovable to us. That's Martin Luther. Now John states something in his, uh, that his audience must have been familiar with, likely uh, from his own preaching, his own storytellers, uh, storytelling from his encounters uh, with uh, Jesus. He says that for everyone who has been born of God uh, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And remember what J- Jesus said? Jesus said, uh, in this world you will have tri- um, tribulation, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. The Greek word for overcome is, I have conquered the world. I have come away from the battle victorious. And you may know, you may be aware that in John, the world is, is a theological uh, construct. It is a, is a concept. It, it is in oppos- the world is anything that is in opposition to the plans and purposes of God. It is opposite the light. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The world is in the darkness. And that, that is something that John goes back to over and over again. But Jesus overcame it. And how have we overcome it? By faith in Jesus. If we are in Christ, then we have uh, overcome the world. And anyone who obeys um, under the yoke of potential condemnation doesn't understand grace. This is the love of God. That we obey His commandments, but His commandments are not burdensome. Because you love Him. You want to please Him. We love Him because He first loved us. This is not how we gain salvation. This is not how we gain favor from the Lord. All the, all the salvation we could possibly get has already been poured out on us. All the favor of God that, you've already, uh, that you could ever possibly get, you already have. God could not esteem you any more than He already does because when He sees you, He sees Christ. And yet we love Him not to gain favor with Him, but because, because He first loved us. And so we obey His commands. It's completely different than the way the world works, the way we work with just about anybody else because that's the way the world works. So we're going to move on, uh, verse 6. This is He who came, by, he's talking about Jesus, this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What does he mean? This is he who came by water and the blood. Well, this is, the important thing is that he came. He came. And, uh, the scholar Jackman says, uh, at, the, at the baptism of Jesus, we saw not an emanation of God that was then joined to a man, uh, but that God came 
as a man. And He came once for all. There is a finality in the way that the, uh, the statement is constructed. And so you can't say that Jesus was just a great man or that He was a great teacher because He came as God. He declared Himself that He was God. You go back to the old C.S. Lewis. He was either, he was either a, a lunatic or He was a liar or He was the Lord of the universe. But you can't have it in your other way. None of this nonsense about Him being a great man because He declared Himself to be God. He, he made some of the craziest statements. Remember the disciples came back uh, from teaching, and they said, we, we, uh, we, we, we cast out the demons, and Jesus said, uh, said I saw the, uh, Satan fall from the heavens. What? I mean, Jesus makes claim after claim after claim that are ludicrous. He was a nut, or he was a liar from the pit of hell, or he was who he said he was. He came. As he was God who came. Now you can understand that this this is was incredibly offensive to those who had left the church that John was writing to. They said that God could not come as a man. There could not be any intersection. And it's incredibly offensive to our in our society today. You are laughed at. You're mocked. You're ridiculed as stupid if you believe that God came as a man. Jesus was a man. He was a great man. He was a great teacher. Obviously, he changed the world, but he couldn't be God. He was God. And he came. And our whole faith rests on that fact. There are other very, very important things. If he did not come, if he was not God incarnate, then he was not qualified to die for our sins. Nor was he able to... to rise from the dead on the third day. Nor did would it have any matter at all that He ascended into heaven if He did not come. He came by water. That is the water of His own baptism. And He came by blood, which is the atoning death uh, that He had made for us on the cross. His baptism at the beginning of His ministry, the blood on the cross at the end of His ministry. In baptism, he aligned himself with sinners. In his death, he took upon himself the wrath and the separation of God that sinners deserved. Now, if he had only come by water, if he had only come by baptism, then he would have set a great example for us, and following his example would be our religion. We are followers of Jesus, but we are not, that is not our religion. Our religion is that we could not, as Andrew really beautifully articulated in the sermon today, uh, that we could not do it ourselves. Our resumes fall short, and God did it for us and gave us His resume, His righteousness, His perfection. He did not come by water only, but He came by water and the blood. And the Spirit testifies. Now, John, John's a little sneaky. He's using the Gnostics' own argument on uh, back on themselves. The Spirit is the truth. Well, yeah, any Gnostic can come up with that. The Spirit is truth. The Spirit is what's good. And yet, I mean, you think of all these people, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What does the Spirit testify? The Spirit testifies that He is the Christ. That He is God uh, incarnate. So he's, so he's the Spirit, and the Spirit is truth, and the Spirit testifies to the divinity of Christ, 
And here's the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Now here it gets, it cannot get any plainer than it gets right here. Whoever has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. How do you, how do you get clearer than that? Maybe the question is, how do you have the Son? It is an astounding thing that God became a son of man so that sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. That God would intersect with humanity. That He would grant us life. That He would love us. That He would intentionally and with purpose that He would uh, reconcile us uh, to himself. We've heard it so many times, the awe of that statement gets uh, diluted. When you hear that you're a child of God, does that, does that make you wonder and marvel at the incredible love of God, or is it just something that you've always heard? You're a child of God. And if you have the Son, then you have life. If you don't have the Son, then the Son is available to you by faith. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. He loves us. He knows us. And He loves us still. Uh, That is the Gospel. And John says, I write to you, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Frank preached on it a couple of weeks ago. But John is convinced that if you know that you have eternal life, if you really grasp it, that, then it will be the driving foundation of your life. Am I mixing my metaphor if I say that driving foundation? It is, it is the foundation of your life. It is the thing that drives you when you wake up in the morning. It is uh, that you have eternal life. And then, he, interestingly, thankfully, the apostle doesn't, doesn't necessarily think like, like we think. He says that um, where, where we might take that is we're, we're assured of our salvation and we're sort of re- kind of rest in that. But he takes it uh, to prayer. He says this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. I, I, I really want to get to the next section, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, but I do want to say that, that prayer is effective. Uh, the effective prayer is the prayer that is according to His will. And if it, But if it is already His will, then, then why should we pray? Because we are aligning ourselves with Him. Now, how do we pray according to His will? We read the Scriptures and we repent. And we fall in Him as Savior. And we ask that God uh, would, um, would reveal Himself to us. I've got, I've got a friend who um, he just, he, he, uh, has been really tight uh, financially lately. And, and uh, so I was talking to him. He, he, um, he was kind of complaining about uh, how tight his, his finances have been. He's been praying about it. Praying, God, you know what can I do? I got a, my system's broken. I got something going wrong. And so, 
And, and at some point, so he's praying, you know, he's pray, these are his prayers. Then it, suddenly he realized, um, but I guess, the, you know, the Holy Spirit speaking to him. God, thank you for what I do have. You know, I've got this plan. I'm not making progress in this, uh, in the in the plan that I've set forth. I thought it was your plan, but, but obviously the way things are going, uh, you have another plan. Uh, thank you, Lord, for what I do have. And let me uh, rest in trusting you. And that is a prayer according to the will of God. That's a different prayer than what we continually pray for. It's fine to, to come to the Lord with requests. We want to do that. But as we do that, let us have not just a, a mouth for prayer, but also ears for prayer. And we hear what the Lord uh, is saying to us as well. Now, we come to uh, verse uh, 16 and 17, and I, I just think it's really important. Uh, we just have a few minutes um, to, but I, these, are, these are very confusing. Again, these are verses that cannot be taken out of context. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that, that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's sin that does lead to death, and there's sin that does not lead to death. This is, um, if you are, uh, if you grew up Catholic, or if you heard, have heard about uh, the doctrine in the Catholic Church, um, there are mortal sins and there are venial sins. There are some sins that are sort of okay, and, and then there's some sins that are not okay. And there's there's mortals, and I, I, I don't know really much more about it than that, but this is where it's com- it comes from. John says there are sins that lead to death and there are sins that, that don't uh, lead to death. Now, I get bogged down in that, but here's what we need to not miss. Uh, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are your family. And the word for ask is, is, is like beseech. It's a, it's a, it's a desperate prayer. And what John is doing is he's, these are some of the last words that he's going to write to, to these churches. Uh, one of the, what he's doing is he's saying, you're a family. You are involved with one another. He's lifting up the community of Christ. If you see your brother or sister uh, falling into sin, pray for them. Care about that. You know, interestingly, he doesn't say, uh, go to him in judgment. He doesn't say, gather out your prayer team and talk about him, and then if you get around to it, pray, uh, pray about it. Um, but he is highlighting the fact that if you see your brother or sister in Christ, a member of your Christian family, if you see them in sin, bring it to the Lord. Now that's a prayer according to the will of God. Pray for them. Now you've got to trust the Lord with that. It doesn't say bring it to them. You know, you may have... you may have a relationship where you can do that. You can bring it to them. But here's, but you should really go at it from the other direction. You, can, you should invite other people into that relationship with you. If you, Brother, if you see me falling into sin, this, I don't mean it so much accountability. If you're inviting their good judgment. Accountability can get a little bit squirrely. But it's a good thing. But there, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to have each other, and you need to be, they need to be involved in your faith life and involved in your walk with Christ. And so if you see, if, so that you can go to someone and say, uh, Brother, I, I hate to tell you this, but I, you know, I'm really struggling with porn. And I need to just say it out loud, and I need to, I need to, I need to confess. And will you, will you pray for me about that? And will you, will you ask, will you, will you stand with me in the gap? And I'm going to talk to you again about it next week. You invite those kind of relationships into your life. And when you say those things out loud, shame, the shame of your sin loses its claws. It comes, it, 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 God has given us each other. Invite those, I'm really struggling with gossip. I'm really struggling with covetousness coveting uh, another uh, person. I'm really, uh, whatever it is, God has given us each other as the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Invite those really. How many, uh, how easy is it to go through uh, 20 years in a Christian small group and know a lot about the Word of God and nothing about your small group? And there is such goodness in knowing about the Word of God. But you have you have fallen short. Your small group doesn't know what you're what you're messing, what what what's going on in your life. I've talked to several small groups in our church. Well, all of a sudden, there's a couple going through divorce. They had no idea that there was anything wrong. We are brothers and sisters. We are given to each other for prayer to stand in the gap. Now, what is this business about sin? Leading to death, sin not leading to death. This does not have to do with levels of sin. And some sins are not as bad and are sort of okay. And some sins uh, are, are really bad and lead to death. John says, all wrongdoing is sin. In fact, the word for wrongdoing is unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Anything outside of the will of God leads to death. And yet, friends, there is, there is one who has already died. It has already led to death in the death of our Savior, Jesus. And so if you are in Christ, your sin will not lead to death. Because that, that sin has already been placed on the cross. And if you, are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, your sin will lead to death. And that's the distinction. The sin that will not lead to death is the sin of the believer. Because God is just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us. But if you're not in Christ, then your sin will lead to death. And that's how, that's how it's going to go. Let's look at verse 7. The last thing that he says, he goes through and he says, that he goes to the very end, and now we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Don't stop believing or um, love each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor yourself. Or goodbye. Love John. 
you would ex- is what he says you do not expect it. Little, this is how he, this is Latin's parting words to these churches. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Period. It's in the letter. Idolatry is anything where we, that we put in our hearts in place of God. And it may be a, a very good thing. It may be uh, the idolatry. Uh, it may be social acceptance. It may be self-gratification. It may be uh, the idol of, of being thought of as smart. All those things have good roots. It's good to, to be nice and be accepted. and It's good uh, to feel gratified. God made us for that. It's good uh, to be smart. God gave us intelligence. But if we put those things above the love of God, then they become an idol. And what idolatry does is it opens the door to the slippery slope that leads uh, to the compromise of the truth. The Gnostics walked through that door. And the Christians would be tempted to walk through that door of the idol of social acceptance. How will others think of me? The idol of self-gratification. The idol of being thought of as smart. Idolatry opens the door to heresy, to Gnosticism. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That is, if, if we open that door, we're headed down the slippery slope. But if we confess our sins, this is the answer. It's not that you'll never have anything wrong. But if you continually return to Christ and repent, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us uh, from all unrighteousness. Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. We pray that You would write them on our hearts. That we would hang from that truth like a rock climber hangs from the rope from which he hangs. Lord, we ask that You would uh, give us that faith to believe in You. That we would love You because You first loved us. And the fruit of that would be that we love our neighbors ourselves. We pray, God, that we would be faithful witnesses bearing testimony of your grace towards us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.